All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Coach's Corner U podcast sponsored by Master Athletic Performance, where we don't count episode numbers because it's another thing that I will forget. Uh, today is a very special episode for me because I'm joined by Ed Cohn. Um, and if you've been living under a rock or not familiar with powerlifting, Ed is perhaps the most prolific powerlifter of all time. Count, I honestly could not count how many world records he's amassed over his career, uh, but more so than that, uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting him in person twice now, and just a, a phenomenal human being, very humble, very willing to help everybody. And I'm looking forward to diving into, you know, what's between the ears of of this champion. So, Ed, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Paul. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, so I wanted to kind of get into it. You know, you're obviously one of the most prolific powerlifters of all time. Uh, maybe take people into a little bit of how you got started training and, you know, a little bit about your career, kind of Cole's notes. Sure. Um, let's see. The reason I got into training was, uh, right before I went to high school, a friend of mine had a universal machine in okay. his basement, which had everything on it. You know, one of those machines had the, a shoulder press, a bench, a pull down, some little cable things. And. I started working out with him in his basement because his brothers did, and they were huge. And it kind of progressed because when I got into high school, I was like four foot 11, 98 pounds. So I decided, well, I thought I was too small for football at the time. So mm -hmm. I went up for wrestling and I started wrestling. And yep. then after I did that for a little bit, I saw pumping iron like every other meathead. Yep. So I tried to be Arnold and then I met Arnold in person at a sporting goods store and I came up to his chest and I was like, shit, I can't be Arnold. So I then saw Franco. So I tried yeah. to be Franco. Cause, and since Franco liked the strong part mm -hmm. and being able to do something, I gravitated more towards him. And after I saw, after I did my first bodybuilding contest, and this is like before they even posted music. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right after that, I saw Bill Kazmaier compete on TV in a powerlifting contest. They mm -hmm. used to have it on TV. Yep. And I was like, well, wait a second. You could be that big, that strong, not have to diet like that and get to lift heavy weights. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to try this stuff. Yep. And you know what? I took to it like a duck to water. It was just so fast and so easy for me, especially the, I was pretty, uh, anti-social i was kind of add mm -hmm. so it was something i could do in myself and by myself but like into myself where i didn't have to rely on anyone and that's i just started training and i think i maxed out on all the lifts twice a week till i got up past 500 and 300 on on both ends and yeah. the middle that's uh I mean, not unlike my story, I, I grew up following bodybuilding and then realized like, hey, probably not going to be good at this, but you're naturally strong. And I loved lifting heavy. So just started. Yeah, I, I, I ended up figuring out that, you know what, if I could get as good as I can possibly get in powerlifting, I'm going to look pretty good anyways. Yeah. So it's something I didn't have to worry about. Yeah. So you you started competing. Like you, you ran the game. Like how heavy did you end up getting towards the end of your career? Like you competed up to 242, right? Yeah. I, I went in a, a meet where it was like uh 
220 and under and 220 and over for money. Okay. So I think I weighed 247 once. And for the record, you're like 5'4". Uh, like more closer to 5'6". Okay. All right. Be the hands of like a six foot seven year, a six foot seven. Yeah, I can still, I can still actually palm a basketball without a problem. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, the big thing that I want, like knowing that, you know, you got into it just the same way anyone else did, and I feel almost like powerlifters self select for the sport. Like you get into it and you either love it or it's just not for you. Um, but I feel like, well, we might get into this a little bit, but I feel like these days social media kind of pushes you in one direction or another and you compete for different reasons. But back then there was no social media. There was no massive amount of notoriety. And one of the things that fascinates me about high achieving people is once you dis once you are the best, what is the motivator to continue pushing forward? I knew I could get better. Very simple. As long as I knew I could get better, I just kept pushing it. So it had nothing to do with anyone else other than yourself? No. When you were competing against, was there anyone like during your time that could push you or who was chasing you? No. Nope. So it really I was. Wasn't. You know what? I, I, for some reason, I learned, in, at least in my own head, that I could only get as good as I could get for me right nobody could push me harder than i could ever push myself and then when it came down to competing which i didn't like competing as much as i liked the gym i uh i would just try to go nine for nine because i knew if i could get all i could out of myself that no one could beat me now was that always the case like obviously when you were at the top of the sport that's for sure. But as you were coming up, did you, did you aspire? Like I'm going to beat that guy. Or when I step on, on the platform against that guy, he's done. No, I just tried to get to do the best I could on that day. Yeah. And something like, I, I, have, never, I, I never worried about placing when I was younger. I just worried about doing what I thought I could do. And I think that's a really important message. Cause I have, the, I have a, I have the pleasure of working with a lot of very young lifters. And one thing that I, try to push to, to them is like this is not the last meet you're ever going to do and if you continue to just build your total meet after meet after meet eventually you're going to have a really respectable total and be able to compete as long as you just keep building up over time yeah i think i think what i told dave tate is i didn't worry about anything but getting better and like i said as long as i knew i could get better i kept kept pushing it but if you get a little bit better a whole bunch of times, you're pretty damn good. Yeah. You're way further along than what you would have been. If when you end up if you end up looking behind yourself, you're like two miles ahead of where you would have been if you worried about stupid stuff. I think that, that holds true for a lot of things, even like investments, right? Compounding everything, interest. Everything. Everything has to be doable and everything you do leads to something else. But like in, in the gym, I never did anything unless it had purpose. It had to have a purpose of my goal or else I didn't do it. One thing that I've noticed having listened to you speak on a number of occasions is you're very methodical with everything that you do. Like you just said, there's a purpose and an intent behind the decisions that you're making. 
you also have this patience about you where you never force the issue. I remember saying like you never missed lifts and training and yet you're known for being a very aggressive, like go for it all type of mentality. So it's like almost this, this dichotomy of methodical, safe progression versus this fierce competitor who's going to take everything he can on the day. Well, I, I, I wanted to be the best I could. Right. So that that's the one part. That's the aggressive part. The other part was I, I read before I even started a quote by Albert Einstein. And to paraphrase it, it was there's genius and simplicity. So I took a simple linear periodization. Yep. Which on on the just on paper looks like it's nothing. This is no big astronomically incredible routine, but when you add in every single thing, all the interest in, in, interest keys that go along with it, from from diet and sleep to uh, the picking your right numbers to having the right routine to picking all the right exercises that will build you for what you want, you know, based on your strengths and weaknesses. Now that becomes genius. It's true. That's true. I. Uh... I, I just, I love hearing that because it kind of affirms a lot of, like, I made a lot of mistakes when I was coming up as a lifter. Like, you know, I missed a lot of lifts in training. I, you know, tried to squeeze as much juice out of that fruit as I could to the point where it beat the crap out of me. And I know looking back in retrospect, I'm like, I could have been a lot better. I put in this, I because of the decisions that I made in the moment, I put in this glass ceiling for myself where, you know, I just couldn't get past that. And I think like I've followed programs that you've published online. I remember reading the first one and being like, there is no fucking way that this guy set world records doing this. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, look, look, look at it this way. When we talk about everything we already, we talked about at the beginning mm -hmm. is how you take your time and how you build up slowly. And when you never miss. So when you never miss your squat, bench or deadlift, let's say in training, I do a high bar close stance squats. I never missed that. I never missed a bent over row or a behind a neck or an incline or a close grip or a stiff leg deadlift. And I never missed any of those mm -hmm. all throughout a training throughout a whole year, whatever training cycle I'm going through. What does that build? Confidence. Yeah. And a, a huge amount of base of uh, a, right. an incredible amount of base that you're strong everywhere. And over time, when you put all that together, instead of having a couple little things strong, you're strong as a whole and can kind of project yourself even further yep. than anybody else because of all that. Yeah. And that's, that's a real base. That's a power bodybuilding base. Right. Yeah, you're building a resilient a resilient vehicle that you can drive as far as you want, as hard as you want. Everywhere. Um, so you started off lifting in lighter weight classes and you, you moved up the ranks. And if I'm not mistaken, you set world records in every weight class as you moved up, right? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't set any at 165 because I was kind of scrawny at 165. Okay. But I, I would have. I missed weight at my first nationals. I was at 19 years old. And it was my first open open nationals. It was uh, 1983, which okay. is weird because my first meet was 1980. So that's how fast I got good. 
43 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Sorry. And, <laughs> and, and I miss weight by a pound. Oh. Yeah. Oh. You know, I was 19. I didn't know. And so I had to lift out instead of 165 pound class, 75 kilos, I had to lift 82 and a half later on in the day because I was already qualified for that based on my total. Right. But if I would have made weight, um, I totaled 1,857 pounds that day. I squatted 317 and a half. I benched 195 before bench shirts and I pulled 330. That's and I was 19 years insane. old. I just missed weight by a pound. That would have been a world record deadlift in total at the time. That'd be pretty close to a world record. I think that in in a junior class, if you want to classify as junior, that's <coughs> very well within a world record for sure. Yeah. I, I think I said junior world records, but I never counted that. I didn't care. You hear that, everybody? Ed Cohn only counts open world records, and so should you. Thank you. Podcast over. See you later. <laughs> yeah, now um, you got everyone because of social media talking. They got to get this record. Like, it's the end-all, be-all of everything with their whole life, and it's only a state record. Yeah. Yeah, I am I find that, you know, I've been – I'm in that interesting – kind of space where I started powerlifting and competing and training before social media. And so, you know, I got into it before there was any notoriety when you still had to order powerlifting USA to get the top tens. And now we're at this place where social media kind of governs lifting. And at least now we do have the unified body of open powerlifting to kind of organize everything from all the different federations yeah. in place. But what I'm seeing more so is that, uh, and, and actually, let, let's get into that. So I'm seeing more so that people are competing not for themselves. They're competing for these external validations rather than the pursuit of personal excellence, which is for me. You'll, that's never, you'll, never, you'll never be as good as you could have been. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and come from inside. That's a passion. Yeah. And I think that's why we see so much burnout in the sport these days as people get into it because it's cool. Um, and they get into it because they're seeking this sort of external validation. They get these beginner gains and if they think it's awesome. And then as soon as that starts to slow down, they're like, oh, this is, this is too hard. It's not fun anymore. Yeah. Because they didn't do it for the right reasons in the first place. Yeah. So take your time. Where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Th this... Not everyone's going to have a world record or be a world <laughs> champion or get noticed everywhere they go, but every single person can get better. Absolutely. And you don't know where you're going to end up. But if you, like I said, if you get better a whole bunch of times, you're pretty good. I agree. Totally. And this is one area where like a lot of the greats in the sport that I've, I've had the pleasure of working with, speaking to, meeting, befriending, a lot of them have taken a very critical view towards the, the top lifters of, of today and the sport as a whole. Yet, I've never seen you once speak negatively about the sport and you constantly give back as much time and energy as you can to it. Like I'm wondering what's your opinion of the state of powerlifting as a whole and why do you continue to take that approach? I don't really care for how much fractured a bit. My view is as long as judging is really good because mm -hmm. I'm a stickler for that. I don't really care what anyone does. I really don't. I just want 
the sanctity of the lift to be beyond reproach. Right. I think I, I just talked that about that and, and Dave Tate just put up yeah. a little bit up uh, on his uh, on his site. And that's what it's all about. And I didn't care if someone was going multiply when Matt Wenning sent the highest squad he ever did, which was like 1190 pounds or something. Um, I coached him that day according mm -hmm. to the rules. Right. I don't, I don't care how anyone competes as long as the judging is pretty damn good. That's all that anyone really cares about because how many people really make it to be, or they can possibly do something at a nationals or a world championships or set a world record. Right. That's such a tiny, tiny percentage that you got to realize what you're in it for. One thing that I always used to say was that the weights weigh the same, whether they're done at a local meet or whether they're done at a pro level meet. And if you're just competing for this, like for yourself, hold yourself to the standard compete to the standard and no one will ever like I've competed literally in every federation that we've had. I've CPL, CPF, USAPL, like all the different letters of the alphabet. <laughs> I've never had a lift contested from anyone because I lift to standard. Yeah. But see, it's not just the meat standards. No, no, no. It's like to get your what own it should be right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no one could look at your lift and say, after the fact, you know, that really wasn't good. He shouldn't have got that. Mm -hmm. No, that would devastate me. It would. It would eat away. It, it actually happened one time I got gifted a lift. And I remember thinking after, I felt so unimpressed with myself that it got passed. And it like, it fueled the rest of my training cycle the next for the next meet. Like, yeah. never going to have a meet like that again. Yeah, I, I went in one of the WPO meets and single pie stuff and walked it out. And I, at the time I squatted 1038, which was the highest squat ever in the whole world, regardless of body weight. But I know I cut it a little bit. Right. But back in multiply in those days, especially the standards were a little bit different mm -hmm. and I got it. And, you know, I, I took the money of course, so I'm of not course. a hypocrite, <laughs> but I don't, I don't count that as my highest squat. No. What would you say is your best no. squat? My best squat was a 1019 that I did pretty pretty easy at a meet. Mm -hmm. And that was with like, I put my own suit on it, had runs in it, it was four years old. But that's what I liked. Because it, it let me squat how I wanted to squat. <laughs> on that subject, what do you think of this 1,401 pound bench press? Here, here's, here's what I really think. I can't um, wait. Now, it didn't really look like he touched or locked out. So that would be the judging problem. Mm -hmm. But Jimmy Kolb is a really nice, strong guy in person. And I would never degrade another lifter. He chooses to do that that keeps him lifting. So in that regards, I don't really give a shit. I just hope he's having fun and he doesn't get hurt. My biggest fear would be if he dropped fourteen hundred pounds, he's dead. You got to have some big fucking balls to put fourteen over your face. Huge, like that but, to me you know, is. Is good. he exceptionally strong? Of course he is. Um, does he get a lot of the equipment? Sure, he does. Is he having fun? Hell yeah. So why would I care what he does? Yeah. I just want the guy to have a good time. 
That's actually like my favorite answer when everyone, anyone asks me about like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? I hope they're having fun. Yeah. Or else why would you do it? Like, like I should be able to interject myself into someone else's life and what they enjoy. Yeah. Who the hell am I to do that? Yeah, totally agree. Um, Coming back to the weight classes, something that comes up for me a lot when I'm coaching younger lifters um, is them feeling like they have to hold themselves in a weight class rather than sticking with the goal of the sport, which is to get as strong as possible. You moved from weight class to weight class kind of methodically over time. When did you know it was time to move up a weight class or did you ever kind of hold yourself back? I never held myself back when it would become dangerous to lose weight. When I got too lean at a certain weight class and I didn't feel that uh, cushion of strength where I felt scrawny and vulnerable, Mm -hmm. then I moved up right away. What was, what would be like a typical weight cut for you that you'd feel comfortable with? The biggest weight cut I did was 25 pounds when I was at 181. Ooh, that's a big cut. Yeah. I cut down for the nationals and worlds and I was already lean. Mm. So by the time I got to weight, I was shredded like something like that. Two days later without even water loading or anything like that. Cause we didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. I was back up over 200 pounds. So I gained, you know, 20 pounds in two days without yeah. even trying. So then I knew it was time to move up and it was, it's just not worth it. Yeah. That's for me especially a young lifter your body weight will be dictated by how hard you train and how yeah, well you grow like a weed exactly so holding yourself to these lower weight classes when all your body wants to do is grow is just hindering your long-term progress <coughs> yeah you cause damage yeah i have think uh, of uh, I, I have to hold on some guys for three years and they suffered for three years to try to get a certain record when if they moved up in the course of that three years, they would hit way more records at the other weight class and fill out and be safe. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, you felt scrawny or you felt you didn't have a cushion of strength. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit more of what you mean? Yeah, when I, when, when I would get too lean, I didn't feel safe under the weight and the squat. Feel like brittle almost. Yes. Good, good, good one. Yeah. yeah. I felt I I felt the same thing. There was a meet where I uh went down to compete at 220. And for all intents and purposes, my training cycle had gone really well, but it was a you know a 19-pound weight cut for me. And on the day of the meet, I just remember I'm like, I am way too dry. This is not gonna be a good time. Yeah. And I ended up tearing my hamstring. <laughs> yep. I did it with my pack. Yeah. I was trying. I was trying to break Jeremy Hamilton's Canadian record. Oh wow! Yeah, he's still got it. He's gonna have it. He's gonna have it. I'm not gonna be the one to break it. So he's got it for me. Was that was that the one he did at one of the boss of bosses meets? Yeah, the meet where the meet where he beat Dan and squatted eight twenty. Yeah, I was there. I was there for that one. That was the first time I met Jeremy. Yeah, that was uh, that was the heaviest squat by a Canadian under two forty two. Yeah. So that was that was what I was trying to do. Um, Okay, the. Next thing I want to talk about, actually a bit of a, a bit of a disconnect from, from powerlifting is 
I've always wanted to know, like, what do you do outside of powerlifting? What was your, what was your job? I used to train people at the beginning. Okay. Then uh, I have some real estate with a big company that a friend of mine owns. Okay. And now I have a, uh, a weed company with some partners. That's a pretty good, that's nice. Well, hopefully it, it, it's going in the right direction. That's we awesome. have a, a processing lab right in Michigan, which is only an hour and a half drive. And uh, so we, we take flour and we break it down and turn it into products for stores. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and you're still in the Chicago area, right? Yeah, it's the suburbs on the south side. Okay, cool. I'm going to be in Chicago next weekend, actually. Where? Uh, we're going to, we're doing a seminar on Sunday at Surge. Uh, oh, okay. New levels. Yeah, um, that's out in uh, Naperville area out that way. Yeah, and we're staying we're staying right beside uh, right beside Midway Midway Airport. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think I'm leaving Saturday morning and coming back maybe real late Saturday night. So if, if you when do you get in town? We're getting in on Friday, and we're leaving. Call me. I I live twelve minutes from Midway Airport. I'm gonna call you. I'm gonna hold you to that. Yeah. Sweet. Um, okay. The next question I have. So are you still coaching people? I know you've been involved with the train, like with Dan's training, with Steffi's training. Like, are you, I, I more or less more advise people. Okay. I, I did help. I did coach a, uh, a strong name, strong man named James, James Rude from the train with Nick boss best. He's from uh, Vegas. Okay. And, he puts he he got so big and so strong actually to compliment myself <laughs> that uh, he he won the big strongman contest in Norway the other week when I was out there. Yeah, Mike told me that uh, it was a pretty incredible trip. Is that the first it time you've ever gone? Pardon? Was that the first time you've ever went? No, that's the third time I went. Oh wow, cool. Well, my my wife is from Norway. Okay, and she usually stays the summer there with mom. So. Oh. Uh, yeah, she just meets me at the airport and we take a train up to the mountain. Awesome. Awesome. Um, okay, these are some, and I guess a little bit more esoteric questions, but so you've done, you've been at the pinnacle of sport. You've achieved success in business. When you think about success in life, what does that mean to you? Uh, happy and content. Yeah. Okay. How do you measure? You know, we we all can look back and say how we screwed up, but if we didn't screw up, we wouldn't be to where we are. Because you definitely learn from your screw ups, unless you're an idiot. And well, it's true. <laughs> At just some point, you said it. Unless you're an idiot. So I'm pretty content and happy. I got a good amount of friends. I uh, I don't have to look over my shoulder. I get a little bit of money. Uh, the business is going to take off, and I'm happy. I don't, I don't have a lot of worries anymore. But I'm also, I'm not a kid anymore either. So, all this stuff takes time, and you, just just like training, you just build it up over time, mm-hmm. and take your time. You're not going to go from having, you know, ten thousand dollars to a million dollars, but over the course of time, you can go to from 
10 to 40 to 60 to 100 to, you know, and keep moving it up. That way you don't make the same mistakes. If you try to take too big a jump into anything, there's a, there's a space in between your training mm-hmm. where you've got your strengths that are naturally inherent in your body, but also your weaknesses down here. Mm-hmm. If all you do is keep training your strengths to get big and strong and this weakness doesn't move up, that gap, which is either knowledge or physical strength, is so big that that will be your downfall. It's honestly everything. Every it's almost like everything we've said can be distilled back to training. Can be used like training as a uh, like a microcosm of life. Where <laughs> it is, and 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 you know, if people don't train but they're good in business, they can use that in their training. Yeah. So it goes it goes both ways automatically. What do you say to that lifter who will absolutely crush himself in the gym, do everything right in his in his nutrition, his training, his sleep? but then is just shitting the bed in every aspect of his life. Um, If he's giving up his life to lift, then he's not living just because you're alive. Doesn't mean you're living. You have to have a a certain amount of balance that you have to look out for your future. Mm -hmm. If you think your future is going to be lifting, well, then you're sadly mistaken because just because you're good at lifting doesn't mean you're going to be smart in business or be able to afford to train how you want. So you better turn that lifting, that knowledge, hopefully that you get if you're smart enough again to turn that into a living. Was young Ed smart enough? Or are you looking back at this saying, you know, young Ed wasn't smart enough. Ed, Young Ed would just do whatever he could for money to be able to keep lifting the way he wanted to. Some of that's good. Some of it's bad. I mean, everybody sacrifices, but at the same time, you still have to look out for the fact that you got to live a lot more years. Well, that was going to be my question is you got to live a lot more years, but do you think you would have achieved the level of excellence that you did had you had balance? Yes. Totally. Because we're we're way smarter than what we think. We can handle way more than what we you know, than what we know. It's just we make we make a choice and we think it's the right choice because just because you're growing doesn't mean you can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people I know that I mean look at some bodybuilders, look like Jay Cutler. Right. Look how successful he was with the managing of his money that he got from seminars or from the Mr. Olympia contest and things like that and on the side what did he do he invested yeah now the guy has a rolls royce i'm gonna be honest i didn't think that you would answer that way i didn't i didn't think that you would say that you you know that balance and excellence could be achieved together it's oh totally we just we don't give ourselves enough credit because we get locked in to this mindset where we just have to lift, lift, lift. And we think if we spend an hour or two outside of that by educating ourselves or trying to work on something that it's going to all crumble and it won't. 
Yeah, it was one thing that I was, so I did my first bodybuilding show last year. So I competed in powerlifting for 13 years, decided to take a break, do a bodybuilding show. And in my prep, it was like, when you're in prep, everything is kind of built around how much shit you have to do to get ready for this show. You got to do your cardio, your tanning, your posing, your mobility, your training, your meal prep, all this extra shit. And what I actually found was that I was more productive and more successful the more shit I was doing for bodybuilding because I used the structure and rigidity of bodybuilding to make me more structured in my business. Yeah, you, but you, you don't do that on purpose. No, no. Yeah, you see, so all of a sudden you realize that it opens up your brain and you realize what you're actually really capable of. We yeah. actually hold ourselves back a lot. I would agree. I would uh, agree. That was, was, that's the one that I point to all the time. Incredibly successful, a great businessman. And he did it all. Stan's one of those guys where people are like, oh, he's so successful. And I'm like, yeah, he also didn't hit his peak level of success. So he was like 42 in powerlifting. Yeah. So why are he you bashing? To get to where he was in business. And then he turned it all around and put it back into bodybuilding and powerlifting and used the same principles. I mean, he's, he's a stud in every way. He's a really cool guy. I've had the pleasure of speaking to him a number of times. And I mean, actually, I wanted to ask you this. So on the subject of like every person that I've met along the way who I would say are these high level achievers, there's only been one instance where I was kind of soured by my experience and I'll kind of leave that out. But you're someone who's always struck me as being very humble. And I want to know like, what does it feel like when people refer to you as the greatest of all time? Of course, everyone likes to hear something nice about them. Right. Um, I don't think of it like, Ooh, look at me. No, it's, it's mm. nothing like that. I am definitely, I definitely love it. Of course. Right. I think it has to do with the impact I had on the sport at the time, because all of a sudden, I came out of nowhere, and I was told I was beating the two twenties and two forty twos as at one ninety eight, and when I was twenty years old, mm-hmm. all of a sudden when I was at two twenty, I out totaled the super heavyweights at the world championship. So it was more the impact. I did have a lot of longevity. I competed for twenty eight years. Yeah. And I got, like I said, I got really good, really fast. That first nationals was only, you know, three and a half years after I started training. I won my first IPF worlds after, from 1980, my first start to 1984. So it it came fast, but the work behind the scenes. Right. I was definitely a fanatic and very single-minded. How I trained, see, because I had that little bit of ADD, socially, I was a little bit more inept. What's that? So I learned from watching people and by reading. Okay. Because I could do it. In, it was in myself. Right. I didn't have myself. to hire anyone else. And then how I developed any technique was by feel. Mm-hmm. If it felt really good and I felt really strong, then it was good. 
I didn't have to go any further and look at other people or look at other world championships or, or champions or anything like that. Cause I knew it was good. Cause it felt great. I actually never even thought of that. So one, you didn't have any video. So something that no. we rely on heavily is video. Like I'll watch my stats. I'll, you know, critique. And it's funny you say that because in the beginning I didn't have that. And then as soon as I started using video, I started making changes. I st and then things start to feel a little bit different. Yeah. That's, that's a definite, I don't know if it's an art or whatever it is, but that a lot of people now don't have. Yes. Is they're trying to copy other people all the time and go by feel. If it feels really good and it's smooth, it is good. Don't freaking change. Now, when you look at it, say, okay, where do I think my weakness may be? Mm -hmm. So that was my whole off season was a different variant of all the lifts that were harder for me that I, or I made harder that I knew would transfer over. It wasn't done to look pretty or anything like that. It was done for the only purpose of to get stronger. Well, you did look pretty though. So, I mean, there's that. Well, for a power lifter, you know, big and ugly is cool. <laughs> it's, I always get shit on because I have a full head of hair. Uh, I still got most of mine. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> in that same breath, when people think about Ed Cohn, what do you want people to think of? Of course, I want to be known as a great lifter in one respect. I just want to be known as a really nice guy. Well, I think you're you're well on your way to that, my friend. It's 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 not it's not hard to be nice. You never have to look over his shoulder. You never have to worry about shit. Mm. And you pass on stuff that is very very meaningful to other people, even though you may know not know it. I mean that that speaks to the impact you've had on the sport because you know I, I've had a lot of conversations with people about everyone wants to know oh, who's the greatest, who's this, who's that, and there's a lot of absolutely mind-blowing performances in powerlifting being done you have you know dan bell and and uh julius or julius maddox you have uh caesar the the gentleman in the ipf who just broke the all-time total record you have john look at, look at the, i always point out from the old days the naba from japan or look at fedosenko from oh, russia yep raw equipped it doesn't matter he wins the world's like He's got like 8 million world championships and he's keeping going. Yeah. And, and so what I always point to is like, yeah, these, these people are having incredible performances, but when you think of, in my mind, when you think of the greatest of all time, it's the person who's contributed back to the sport and you continue to give back even this podcast, giving you my, giving me your time to talk about powerlifting, to talk about life, you continue to build up the sport and that impact that you provide is almost immeasurable, I would say. So hey, but you know what? It's actually really easy. <laughs> it really yeah. is. It, it's easy to be nice. It's harder. You're you're you are a miserable son of a bitch if you're mean to people all the time. Oh yeah, for sure. And <laughs> I, I choose I choose not to be that person because I don't want to bring myself down. I think it's um well, again, like not to keep blowing smoke, but it just it's it speaks to your character. Um, 
So I want to jump into some more quick hit questions. We got about 10 minutes left. So one of the questions was, what was your scariest moment under a bar? When I blew my knee out. Oh, I don't think I've ever heard this story. When I, I set up really, really fast. Okay. So my right leg was out further to my left. Okay. So on the way down, I felt my right leg buckling in, but I couldn't stop myself. My brain wouldn't stop me from going down. I was like a robot. And mm-hmm. I knew it was going to snap before it snapped. Thank God I used to lift with old timers like Ernie France and those guys mm-hmm. where they taught me how to dump a bar when I was the kid. Because I would have been crushed because it happened on the way down. That's, uh, I've I've had two. So I was squatting. It was in prep for a meet. It was like three weeks out. I squatted 815 and I dumped it over my head. Yeah. I was squatting in wraps and I just kind of got pitched forward a little too hard. It just went right over my head. Uh, and then... I squatted seven, I think 320 in a meet and my quad tore on the way up. Oh. So you can like see my leg do this. Yeah, but, but the, the feel that you have of it in your brain never ever goes away. No. You feel either that pop or that or it goes blah, 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 like It was that. like Velcro. It felt like Velcro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did do the, the over my head in uh, Perth, Australia. Is the little bit of squat suit I had, um, I didn't pull it up high enough, so it blew. Oh, so th- there's a picture of me that was in Powerlifting USA. I think it's actually on my Instagram somewhere where I completely bent over with a bar on my neck, and I went like this afterwards, and then it was just pure blood. Yep. But then you got to come out and do your second attempt because that was the first attempt. Yeah, I'm. I I took that a fifteen again, and I hit it right afterwards. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, look if if someone oh we're back oh okay if somebody thinks in that instance when you come back and hit it if they think that they have a choice not to take it again and make it then they should not be competing i agree because then you're not even you're not really competing you may be up there and going through some lifts, mm-hmm. but you're not really competing. You're scared. Yeah. You're scared. Um, the next and question. Actually, actually, what I used to say is being um, nervous about a lift or something like that or, or um, will actually save you. But being scared, fear will actually hurt you because it changes the way you approach it or what you do on the way down or on the way up. It's like playing to win versus playing not to lose. Exactly. Yeah. The next question I had was, so you've trained with some pretty incredible lifters. Um, What was crazier training with guys like Kirk or training with guys (laughs) like uh, Chuck? Um, I never really trained with Chuck. Okay. Chuck and I have decided that if we trained together, we would have been way, way better. Yeah. Because not just intensity, but putting our minds together. Chuck doesn't get a lot of credit. He should for being as smart as he was for all those years and lasting and lifting mm-hmm. really big weights. I think he deserves a little more credit. Agreed. Um, uh, Kurt was definitely crazy. 
more on a emotional kind of crazy level, but th- th- it's easily to predict. Right. You know, you know what's going to happen before you even walk in the door. Yeah. I never got the pleasure. I kept everything inside. I let it out on the weights. I like to keep my composure and everything into myself to go through the steps in my mind and get the feel. I knew I was going to get a lift when I walked it out. Right. I already knew. I now, the guy got... from probably was uh, Doug Furnace back in okay. the old days. He was the craziest? Doug, he wasn't the craziest, but I learned the most from him watching him. He came from a football background. He was the head running back or fullback for University of Tennessee when they won the national championships way back when the guys were monsters in 82. And uh, his attention to detail with keeping your routine very simple mm-hmm. and technique-wise would help me out a lot. Very cool. I uh, I laughed at that question when I saw it roll through because I never got the pleasure of meeting Kirk, but I remember meeting Chuck uh, in the warm-up room of the Arnold when it was at uh, the spot, JL's place. Yeah. For a couple of years. I saw him in the warm-up room and I was like, oh my God, Mr. Vogapol, like so nice to meet you. This is like 2010. I was, you know, 22 years old. And he looked at me and I thought my head was going to explode just by the way he looked at me. He was super super kind, but it was just the look that he had on his face. When you see Chuck, when he's not in the warm-up room or on stage, he's the quietest, softest guy you would know. Because he doesn't have to prove himself. That's true. Yeah. I had to be accountable to me only. I was my worst critic. Nobody could say anything worse than what I thought in my own head. So I had to appease myself. It's fair. So again, you held yourself accountable to yourself. I can get you're definitely going to get hundred percent because then you're honest. You don't have to look at videos on the internet. You don't have to see how many likes I'm going to get to do something cool instead of ticking to your training to get you strong. I mean, that's that's a big question to ask. I mean, anyone who's listening, ask yourself the question of, would you still train and would you still post your training if no one would see it? Yeah. Are you doing your training routine or do you ever go off program or do anything to make it look cool on video? That's a great question. Yeah. I think someone sticking to their training is really cool. My, my, my training partner that I've always had, um, even though I don't train heavy anymore, is a kid named Jared Martin. I think he's won the Arnold and he's like one, just won the, a big thing where he decided to wear some really old, loose equipment and do equipped. But at 275, he has, I think he has the squat record now. He beat Dennis Cornelius in the squat record. Almost oh, made Mike Trashier's deadlift record. Oh, wow. And he's strong as shit. Today in the gym, in just knee sleeves, he goes, I have to do three sets of five at 327 and a half, 722. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He could have easily done eight to 10 reps today. He stuck to program. That's what's cool. When you change anything in program at the beginning or middle or even the end, it changes the outcome 
because the outcome is based on everything that you written down in beforehand. Right. So if you change something, it ruins it right away. And then what, what happens about three quarters of the way through a routine when someone misses something? They blame everyone else that this routine sucks or my trainer sucks or blah, 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 blah. No, you suck because you changed the shit when you were supposed to. Yep. Or you didn't do what needed to be done outside the gym to make sure that you were able to perform in the gym. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in, in the old days, we used to just call that a light day. So, you know, instead of a D-Lo day. Yeah. I think D-Lo was more created more with uh, West Side because the massive amounts of chains and bands and extra resistance they used where they had to take a rest or else they die. <laughs> I remember reading a book. I think it, it was it was either a book that Matt Wenning wrote or a or an article that he wrote about his deloads, and his deloads were still like ten sets of ten dumbbell bench. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> quite the deload. Yep. Well, it taxed the muscles instead of the as much of the nervous system and um, your joints. Well, people people don't realize like yeah, ten sets of ten might be a deload if you're used to using thirteen hundred pounds of band tension. Yeah. But see, the, the thing is, is the biggest <clears throat> equation there is you have to be in shape. Of course. I remember I did a uh, the color for big dogs in Australia before with a couple other Australian lifters. Yep. And after squats during intermission, they started having the, the crowd ask us questions. And the announcer got a question and he asked me, well, you saw a lot of guys here miss a lot of lifts in the squat mm -hmm. why do you think that was i go well here they go by the rules and you only get so long in between lifts and blah you know you're right. everyone is held on a timer he goes well why do you think they missed i said i can't tell you why they missed i just know that i used to show up in shape Ooh. yeah that's the same response the whole crowd at once said it's true though yeah you you, you have to be in shape to withstand the rigors to be the best throughout a whole day of competing. I remember that day was notoriously strict on the rules as well. Like in terms of judging, like it was very strict judging. There was a lot of, a lot of red lights for depth. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that does apply to a lot of other sports. I, I've done a whole bunch of fight stuff, street stuff. Mm -hmm. And I asked my trainer, I said, well, what would I do against this guy? And it was a big guy I, I mentioned. He goes, there's just more to hit. He goes, there's not going to be anyone better than me, better than the stuff that you go through in here mm -hmm. that's going to make a difference. So you got you, you you train to such a level that when you get into the real life platform, mm -hmm. that it's nothing for you to do that. The only thing there is mindset. I love it. Um, okay. Some quick hit questions. Do you crack your eggs on the corner of your, of your skillet or on a, or on a flat surface? On the corner of the skillet. Okay. Do you say soda or pop? Pop. If you had five dinner guests dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, I would like, uh, Joe Rogan and Elon Musk and Dana White. Okay. And um, 
someone like Muhammad Ali. Okay. And probably some like really big philosophy type person. Like a Socrates? Yeah, someone that's to throw throw it in there. Because what you would probably see is a huge amount of commonality amongst thought of people who are really good at everything different. It's actually like, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, I, I like to pay attention to people who are high performers. And there's a a massive amount of commonalities between the people that achieve excellence and regardless of what field that they're in. And you kind of hammered home probably one of the biggest ones is that you need to embrace the process and you need to be patient because progress takes time. And only when you rush the process and only when you focus on things external to your control, will things go wrong. Yep, because you end up missing things. You skip things that yeah. are part of your base of getting stronger. After after every year of training, I enjoyed my off-season the most because I could let my ego go where I didn't have to worry about numbers, and I could train all my weaknesses that I knew was getting me bigger and stronger. I loved that part. Yeah. But that was every that was every year. It wasn't like, oh, you lay down a base, it takes you know two or three years. Well, no, you can lay down a new, stronger base every time to be able to build a higher level of strength that your body has to put up with. How many times a year did you actually compete, usually? Twice at the most. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, all right, last question. If there's one person that you would like to see on this podcast, who would it be? And the cap, the caveat is you have to help me get them on the podcast. Kirk. Kirk Kerwaski. I would fucking love to chat with Kirk Kerwaski. Good. Okay. I'm going to message him and tell him I gave you his number and that you're going to call him to try to get, get him on a really, really cool podcast. I'm here for it. And I'll work on it. Thank you so much for your oh, time. You're welcome. Today. Hey, for all your guys, make yep. sure that your guys, if they haven't looked at it, to check out your podcast when you did it with Dave Tate. It's awesome. I thank you very much. That's, that's very to, to know that you listen to it is pretty cool for me. So um, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Just get me on Instagram. I usually answer everything. What I do on Instagram is people send me videos mm -hmm. and I take like one or two sentences and break it down and correct it. Okay. And that's for free. If you want to have your list corrected by the greatest of all time, and a great human being. Message Ed Cohn. Ed, thank you so much. And uh, please, everyone. I might like... be next Friday. Yeah, I'm going to call you on Friday. Friday yeah. Hell yeah. Um, everyone, like, share, subscribe. We'll catch you next time.